Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. I'm Rai Dwake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. This podcast series of short, digestible episodes is intended for patients and families and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I will be interviewing experts about timely and timeless topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical illness, sleep, infectious disease, and related disciplines. We will share with you information that will help you take better care of yourself and your loved ones. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. I'm your guest host, Eduardo Mireles Cabo de Vila. I currently serve as the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the Cleveland Clinic main campus. My guest today is Dr. Sudhir Krishnan, who serves as the medical director of the Medical ICU Acute Respiratory Care Unit and the ECMO team at the Department of Critical Care Medicine. Today, we'll be talking about extracorporeal support in the ICU, that is ECMO. So dear, welcome to the podcast. Eduardo, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I would like to ask you, as the director of the ECMO team, to explain to us what, what is ECMO and how do you use this model? So Eduardo, ECMO in the simplest form, consists of plastic tubes that siphon the blood off from your body, put into an artificial oxygenator or an artificial lung, suffuses it with oxygen, takes the bad gas carbon dioxide off, and then pushes it back into your body, into a vein if it's a lung failure, and pushes back into an artery if it's heart failure. So it's a machine that can be used to support a failing heart and a failing lung. Hmm. So... Tell me, why do you use this? ECMO is used as a measure of last resort. When you fail every therapy and the patient is an extremist. So when a cardiologist or a cardiothoracic surgeon or an ICU physician or a lung physician entertains this treatment and therapy, he's under the belief that he's exhausted conventional treatment and therapy and the only recourse to save the patient is to siphon the blood off, put into an artificial heart-lung machine, and suffuse it back into the patient. So essentially what you're talking about is a machine that is keeping you alive and taking over the function of the heart and the lung. So this sounds a little bit like dialysis of the kidney. Is it the same for the, for the lungs? Well, it is more so than just dialysis. You can get by without dialysis for a few days. But if you truly need ECMO and that's not provided, to you with a sense of urgency or emergency, it's unlikely you're going to survive for any length of time. So you need it continuously. Once that they put you on, you're on it until you're off. No, Eduardo, that's a great question. So you need, you need ECMO therapy for only as long as it's required for the heart and lung to recover. Mm. Once the lung and the heart recover, every effort is made by the physician in charge to separate you from the ECMO therapy. Wow. So, so the ear... This is great. It seems that it's a device that it's needed. Why, why is it only used at the, the moment in which mechanical ventilation didn't, could, cannot do it, when the ma maximum support is given? Why, why don't we do it earlier on other patients? Uh, Edward, what a fabulous question. You know? So ECMO therapy for respiratory failure as it exists currently in its current form, because of how resource-intensive it is, It's saved for a given group of patients who are in need of it and only after having exhausted conventional therapy 
because one is mindful about the complications that can happen with ECMO. It's not entirely a benign treatment therapy. Will there be a time in the near future where it could supplant the mechanical ventilator and you will have no mechanical ventilators? I think if it's, I think it's a possibility. If you can send a spaceship to Mars and a man to the moon, <laughs> and and you can have cars that can fly, then I think this is in the realm of possibility. And I believe this therapy is an inflection point. And in this decade, I believe there will be substantial developments in this ECMO therapy where it will be miniaturized enough and will become economical enough where it will be commonplace in the ICU. Fabulous. So at this time, I mean, can you explain me how do you choose patients to undergo ECMO? And what happens if the patient does not meet the criteria to be ECMO at this time? Yeah. So ECMO for lung failure at the Cleveland Clinic main campus is decided upon after the patient has failed conventional therapy in the medical ICU that involves uptitrating the treatment and therapy on a mechanical ventilator, using medications to facilitate lung injury, adjustments to the mechanical ventilator. And there comes a threshold or a crossroads in patient care when the physician realizes there's only so much that he can do with the mechanical ventilator. That any more manipulations of the mechanical ventilator would add salt to the injury. And the physician then chooses to disengage from the mechanical ventilator and default to an ECMO machine because there is no recourse to treatment and therapy anymore. And we have got clear indications of when that can be done based off the amount of oxygen that's physically dissolved in the patient's plasma, the levels of carbon dioxide. And there are other criteria with regards to the patient's underlying clinical condition that comes into play. We are loath to considering patients with multi-organ failure or patients who are moribund who are at death's door, patients with metastatic malignancy whose prognosis are very poor. But every effort is made to make sure that the person who needs ECMO therapy for lung failure gets to the therapy as soon as he can at the right clinical juncture. So this this is interesting. So, I I mean, we have talked about that even though this is a life-saving therapy, it comes with its, at this point in time, with its complications. It's a prolonged course. And there's a group of patients that may not be appropriate to go under it because even with it, they may not do well. Is that what I'm understanding? That is true, Eduardo. And the second part of the question is, what if in case they can't go on ecmotherapy? Uh, Unfortunately for those patients who are not deemed candidates for ecmotherapy, uh, nature will take its course. And as much as we hope and pray that they improve without ecmotherapy, uh, the outcomes could be otherwise. And at that juncture, the discussions with the family are honest, but our goal is to continue to care for our patients, even if we can't cure them. And it's not unusual for us to engage our palliative care colleagues to care for the patient and for the family as they negotiate this uncertain outcome. Yeah, it's it's a very difficult time because there's big decisions to be made during that time. Yeah, but it's, 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 the, the, the distress that the family goes through it's tremendous because essentially what we've just said is that from that point onwards, the outcome is not known. And I can only imagine what the families are going, going to go through. So 
I mean, let's say that the, the patient goes on extracorporeal life support and you put them on ECMO. What should a ma family member expect? All right. So it is very... ECMO machines are very imposing in nature. It's hard not to walk in to see that blood flowing out of a patient's body into a machine and not be a bit frightened by the sight. It's not unusual for the patient to be connected to multiple life support devices. So for a layperson, it can be a bit much. But as the shock slowly starts wearing off, what I would love for the families to do is to coordinate with the nurse at the bedside and with their permission, take control, be involved in the patient's care. As small things that they can do, hold the patient's hand, talk to the patient, play them their favorite music. Even when they're asleep, I believe that they hear your voice and they're familiar with your voice. That can be very reassuring. If the nurse allows you, massage the hands and legs, rub lotion, and this allows you to participate in care. A, a physiotherapist or a, a nurse can help you guide with passive range of motions that you can do for your loved one at the bedside. Make sure that you have regular conversations with the physicians. We allow our family members to join the physician rounds in the morning. And once we're done with the medical discussions, we make it a point to discuss the patient's daily management in layman's terms to the family at the bedside. In addition to that, once a week we hold a family conference where multiple subspecialists get together to update the patient's family. So I would encourage the family to be engaged with the physicians, engaged with the nurses, and contribute to patient care at the bedside. You will feel in control. You will feel better. So, so there, I mean, the runs in ECMO sometimes can be very short, sometimes can be very long. And that can also be very tiring for the, the family. We are used to, or we want to expect, rapid recovery of the, the events. What, what, in general, should they be expecting in terms of time for recovery of their loved ones in general? That's a great question, Eduardo. Well, I would be mindful about the clinical context in which the ECMO support has been initiated. If it's ECMO is a bridge to lung transplant, then the family should expect a protracted ECMO run till such time as the lung is transplanted. That could be days, weeks, or even months. We have cared for patients on ECMO therapy for months together with successful lung transplantation at the end. There are other patients who have not made it after protracted ECMO therapy period. On an average ECMO therapy for lung failure, and I'm saying only for lung and respiratory failure, expected a run or therapy that could last between four to six weeks. ECMO therapy for a given disease process might be shorter. And we've realized that patients who are committed to ECMO for serious or severe exacerbations of asthma do not require weeks of ECMO therapy. They usually require days of ECMO therapy. And like I said, every patient is different as to how long an ECMO run could last depends upon the clinical context in which it's begun. So asthma runs, I would expect it to be shorter. Frank lung injury because of ARDS or, or a pneumonia may be way longer. You talk to a lot of family members of patients. What are their common concerns? Common concerns... Well, the elephant in the room is, is he going to get better? When is he going to get better? When is the ECMO going to come off? 
is he going to go back to his usual self? Mm-hmm. Um, and that begs the question again as to, and I remind the families, the clinical context in which the ecmotherapy has been initiated. Most of the discussions usually happen when the relatives in the family are more informed about a given situation. So it's not usual for you to update the family regarding an event or a turn in the patient's clinical condition and the conversation goes down that and how are you managing this and what can I expect and when can recovery happen and have you called the consultants. But the elephant in the room has always been, is he going to get better? When is he going to get better? When is he coming off ECMO? When can he go home? So you put somebody in ECMO and there's usually things, levels of support that they're going to require. I know that there's blood transfusions. There may be other interventions like tricostomies. Can you talk to us a little bit about this? Sure. Once a patient is committed to ECMO therapy for lung failure, the patient's clinical course dictates the need for more treatment and therapy. It is not unusual for patients to lose blood or for patients' red cells to be destroyed by the machine in some cases for patients to bleed out and the patients need blood transfusion. We are very conservative with our blood transfusion targets over here. We try our best to minimize you know, blood transfusions, but if it's required, it's done. Blood transfusion and transfusion of other blood products, platelets, are commonplace. So daily management of the patient, there's a clear agenda that's set during the day. If we can, the patient is woken up, and the ask is that the patient interact with the surroundings, with family members and the nurses. The mechanical ventilator settings are guided by the requirements of that day. The ECMO machine manipulations are made to achieve a certain level of oxygenation, or oxygen levels. The patient is, every effort is made to feed the patient as early as we can. Blood products and blood transfusions are per, per protocol, depending on how anemic the patient is. And every effort is made for the patient to have physiotherapy in bed while he's in bed. And here at the clinic, we go the extra mile, and if the patient's wide awake, and then the patient is asked or made to ambulate on ecmotherapy. Mm. And that's something that we pride on here at the clinic. We try to do that for all our patients as much as we can, but more so for our patients who are on a bridge to transplant and who are on ecmotherapy for months together. Tracheostomy is considered in most patients, because we anticipate a protracted li- protracted vein from our liberation from the mechanical ventilator. So the the usual mechanism is to, the usual process is to disengage from ECMO first and the mechanical ventilator later. Tracheostomy adds a certain level of comfort for the patient and allows us to quickly disengage or engage with mechanical ventilation as if and when needs be. And at an opportune time, the patient is decannulated or even the tracheostomy tube is taken away. So I presume that there's a lot of doctors that the family members are going to see at the bedside. Is that a normal thing? It is not unusual for the patient to be cared for by Perhaps 50 or 100 healthcare providers during the course of an ECMO run as the shifts change, as the physicians change, as the nurses change. But what we pride here at the Cleveland Clinic is continuity in care. There's always one physician in charge who dictates the course of the patient's clinical care. And because we are a multidisciplinary team, everybody is in touch with everybody else. So it is quite literally as if there's no discontinuation in care, 
the patient has been continuously cared by the same beast or the same ecosystem, and there's no compromise in, 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 in medical care. But it's a true fact. The patients are cared for multiple healthcare providers, multiple subspecialists. And I would ask the families, if it's possible, is to interact with those subspecialists, interact with the physicians, keep their names, keep their specialities in a record so you know who you spoke to as you negotiate this difficult process. Yeah, it's. Uh, I can imagine it can be super confusing with all that army of people coming into the room. You all do a very nice job in having meetings daily with the, the family, and obviously once a week you recap this thing, but... I, another practice that you, that the team here at the clinic has created was to involve palliative care in the care of all these patients. Why do you do that? Uh, so how does that, what, what's the reason for that? Yeah. So Eduardo, like I said at the outset, you know, the families are in tremendous amount of distress because essentially the outcome is unknown. And our palliative care colleagues do a phenomenal job of providing both psychosocial and emotional support to the families, not just the patients. The patients are usually sedated and being cared for by the intensives and nurse at the bedside. Early palliative care involvement is solely for the families, and we found them to be a tremendous resource. Their continued involvement in patient care facilitates one of many things. They're actively involved in ongoing discussions about escalation of medical therapy and de-escalation of medical therapy or withdrawal of medical therapy. Early introduction of palliative care services and the relationship that the palliative care physician develops with the family serves the group well when we have difficult decisions to be made, especially with regards to withdrawal of care. So they facilitate goals of care discussion. But another thing that caught my attention during COVID times at Bordeaux was, you know, as we negotiated these difficult cases, I think my colleagues in palliative care medicine served as an emotional support for the frontline providers. It wasn't unusual for me to have a discussion with my PCM colleague about the challenges that I faced, and I'm sure it was the same for the intensives and nurses. They were a sounding board or a shoulder to cry on. So I find them to be a terrific resource for frontline ECMO specialists too. That's wonderful. So, so after ECMO, you have so many good stories from survivors. So what I would like to know is, can you tell us, as patients come off ECMO, can they go home? Yes, Eduardo. So like I said, you know, and I would divide the, the phases of ECMO, the three phases of ECMO, early care for the patient when he's severely ill, when he's coming off ECMO or she's coming off ECMO and slowly getting better. And the third is surviving ECMO and coming back home. So our goal is always to get the patient home. But it would be foolish for anybody who does extra life support, both for lung or heart failure, to believe that it will not require time. So remember, these patients have been laid in bed for weeks and days together, they are physically debilitated, and some of them, you know, emotionally so. So recovery is protracted, and it is not unusual for the patients to go to an acute care facility and then be transferred to a nursing facility before they go home. Home is the ultimate goal, but it's possible that the road to home could 
pass through an acute care facility, a nursing facility, and then home. Yeah, I mean, they go from a lot of support to less support to less support until they're able Absolutely. to be on their own. You put that very well, yes. Yeah. So what are the consequences that patients that survive ECMO have to deal with? Yeah, so ECMO takes a toll on the human body. ECMO survivors can have, not necessarily so, but can have physical, cognitive and emotional disabilities that may not be evident immediately but manifest over the course of time. It's not unusual for them to have anxiety, some patients to have frank depression, some patients to have post-trauma stress disorder-like condition. It's not unusual for them to be physically debilitated to a point where coming back home and negotiating stairs and going back to activities of daily living are easier said than done. They may not necessarily be able to get back to work immediately. And those are the few things that have kind of that have kind of caught my attention. So ECMO therapy, ECMO survivors, not all of them, some of them go on to develop both cognitive, emotional, and physical disabilities that could last from weeks to months. So what I would say is that post-ECMO therapy, expect the patient to recover in months rather than weeks. Is there something available to help recover them, to talk to someone after they have come out of this and be start having those feelings or those disabilities? What, what is your recommendation? So, uh, Eduardo, here at the clinic, you know, we are eminently aware of these challenges that ECMO survivors face. And both in our post-ICU recovery clinic and in the ECMO clinic, every effort is made to connect the patient with the resources that the patient requires to thrive, be it continued physiotherapy and occupational therapy as an inpatient or as an outpatient, connection to mental health resources if required to be, connection to subspecialist expertise if required to be. And we believe that the survivors who thrive and who do the best are people who continue to engage with the healthcare establishment as they negotiate the post-ECMO survivor period. And, and the family also needs to be uh, aware of that, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's one, that, that's one thing I remind all families mm -hmm. is, is that as you care for the patient on ECMO, you must make every effort to care for yourself. This takes healthcare, people who care for patients who are sick or infirm in the hospital, go through, this, go through a similar process of mental, physical, and emotional trauma May not be to the extent of the patient, but I'm acutely aware of the mother, the father, the daughter, or the brother sitting at the bedside, you know, caring for that patient on extracorporeal support, holding the hand. It it is a it is a tremendous insult to the patient's mental psyche. So one of the asks is as you care for your family members, make an effort to care for yourself too. Yeah. So search for help and so without a doubt this is a therapy that saves lives and helps patients continue their life while they recover. But it comes at a cost, and that cost requires attention from the team 
after the patient is discharged to get them through all of this. So dear, this has been a fantastic recount and I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast today. I'm your guest host, Eduardo Mireles Cabo de Vila, and my guest today was Dr. Sudhir Krishnan, who serves as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit, Acute Respiratory Care Unit, and ECMO team at the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. Today, we talked about extracorporeal life support. Thank you, Sudhir. Thank you, Eduardo, for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. For more stories and information from the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow me on Twitter at tridwakemd.